Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Back again. Welcome back, Jordy Long. Hey, what's up? Hey, Ripto's uh, formula for Bud Light is effective. It's right. working. I put I put a, a little tiny bit and we're feeling it. We're ready to go. We're ready. Episode two, small talk, done. Skin of the game. I was like, what, what fucking book is this? Skin <laughs> of the game, episode two. So Taleb walks into how this fits right into his other works. And we talked about this a little bit, but this is going to be Taleb's words. In the Black Swan, we examined those rare, extremely low probability events that are actually real fucking important. You know, September 11th causes a 20 years war, causes massive economic differences than if that hadn't happened. In Anti-Fragile, he taught us what to do about it. And in this book, he explains how ultimately skin in the game is a core thing that must be present in every smart system. Whenever there's a mismatch between, say, bonus period, say yearly, and likelihood of blow up, say every 10 years, you get more and more people getting into this risk-shifting game until there's a progressive accumulation of black swan risks and such a system goes boom. And so, Taleb is the most logically consistent fellow I've ever heard of. So in talking about Hammurabi, he just, he just throws out that he felt like a pussy if he didn't learn that ancient dead language, Akkadian, which if you remember from 300, I'm sure you guys all do. Akkadians, they were the shittier little helpers that like pussied out and got too scared and then like left the, the Spartans to die. But um, he wrote this whole, before he wrote this whole book, he learned Akkadian solely to read and recite Hammurabi's fucking code. And he says, it may have delayed the completion of this book, but at least when I mention Hammurabi, my conscience doesn't make me feel like a fraud. What a man. Uh, this book came out in 2018, and uh, he says, after finishing Anti-Fragile, he thought about retiring his pen and settling, settling into a comfortable quarter university position, enjoying squid ink pasta, lifting with his blue-collar friends, and playing bridge in the afternoon. What I didn't forecast is my dream of a tranquil retirement lasted only a few weeks for I exhibited no skills whatsoever in retirement activities. And he illustrates this by telling us that one time, by happenstance, he tried to solve a mathematical brain teaser and it led to five years of compulsive, time-invasive mathematical practice with obsessive bouts that plague people inhabited with actual mental problems. What a fucking crazy person. But I never expected the following effect. All of that made his bullshit detector so sensitive that listening to well-marketed nonsense had the same effect as being put in a room with instances of randomly occurring piercing and jarring sounds the type that kill animals. What? What are you fucking talking about, Taleb? It is under such an oversensitive bullshit detector that I've been writing this book and the, the fucking third prologue is now done. Do you want to go into the actual book finally? I'm ready. Me too. A first look at agency. 
why each one should eat his own turtles. What? Equality in uncertainty. There's an old adage, you who caught the turtles better eat them. The origin of this expression is as follows. It was said that a group of fishermen caught a large number of turtles, but after cooking them, they found that these turtles fucking sucked. But luckily, the god Mercury was passing by, and they were all like, hey, Mercury, buddy, how are you doing? Hey, you want some turtle? And Mercury was like, oh, hey, that's so good to see you guys. Yeah, sure, I'll have some turtle. But Mercury took one bite of this turtle garbage masquerading as cooking, and detecting that he was only invited to relieve them of unwanted food, he forced them all to eat the turtles, thus establishing the principle that you need to eat what you feed others. And Taleb has learned this lesson in his own naive experiences. He says, beware of the person who gives advice, telling you that a certain action on your part is good for you while also being good for him when the harm doesn't directly affect him. So think of like, I don't know, some sort of consultant or something that, you know, hey, do this and like do this involves pay him $100,000. But if this doesn't go well, whatever, that dude sells $100,000 and you're the one screwed. Beware of people not wanting to eat their own turtles. The asymmetry is when said advice applies only to you and not to him. He might be trying to get you to marry his daughter. Oh, she's great. She's so hot. She can cook. Look at her. She's so great. And then like she turns around and you're like, oh my God, hire his son-in-law or other equally undesirable outcomes. Avoid at all cost those who call you to tout a certain product disguised as advice. In fact, the story of the turtle is the archetype of the history of transactions between mortals. And so Taleb tells about how, so he was this trader at this giant investment bank. And you know, all the salesmen would take clients out to these extravagant dinners, golfing. And uh, as one expert salesman candidly told Taleb, if I buy the client, someone working for the finance department, a bottle of $2,000 wine, I own him for the next few months. I can get at least $100,000 of profit out of him. Nothing in the market gives you such a return. As the Romans were fully aware, one lauds merrily the merchandise to get rid of it. Oh yeah, this turtle's great. Pull up a chair, grab a bowl, buddy. Now he weaves ethics through a lot of this and it can basically be summed up as like, what would a Kusemono do? But um, he talks about this ancient thought experiment of, is it ethical to sell corn at a high price if you're the first ship and you know that there's a lot of other ships coming. So, you know, hey, there's this place that's a famine, you got corn, you're the first ship, you know, you can sell your corn for super expensive, but you know that there's like 50 other ships coming. You would be in the possession of asymmetric information. So he talks about how, you know, various systems throughout history have solved that. So Sharia law has a way to solve that. Um, I assume it's like cutting their hands off. Uh, Talmudic law solves that um, in a different way. Uh, but the whole reason for him to discuss this is because, you know, these ethical questions mishandled can grow and grow. And, you know, this in-group, out-group thing of like, Hey, bitch, yeah, don't eat that turtle. It's nasty versus, oh, hey, for you, we're going to give up our whole meal and just you can eat all the turtle. That dynamic, that's everywhere. 
And he sums it up with a phrase, at a federal level, I'm a libertarian. At a state level, I'm a Republican. At the local level, I'm a Democrat. At the family and friends level, a socialist. And now, I don't think I've got any wise thoughts about this, but I feel like this these asymmetric information, this incentives, this type of structure, I feel like crypto is trying to solve some of this. You got any thoughts, buddy? Yeah, I have some thoughts. Okay, so if you want to go deep on it, I would say that uh it depends on the crypto. I think that's pretty broad, but obviously I'm going to uh, talk about Bitcoin first. I think Bitcoin does do a, a pretty good job of solving a, a one so, uh, one form of eat your own turtles problems. Uh, the, to understand that, the first thing you got to do is talk about how our money works today and how it violates the eat your own turtles problem. So right now we have an unelected official named Jerome Powell who runs the Federal Reserve, a central bank that is neither federal nor has reserves. So weird. That's a weird name. That's, that's, that's like yeah. the save the children's bill, but then it's like killing a bunch of old people or something. You're like, well, you, you, wait, you don't want to save the children. Your bill actually kills old people. Yeah, it's, it's basically the same thing as that. And so right now we have an unelected official who basically can affect the monetary policy of the entire united states and and the uh, and the purchasing power and the Me- meaning like hey we need to print more money hey we need to print more money basically they have ba- really zero cost to increase the money supply i wish this were an exaggeration but they can literally go into their computer and just type a zero onto their balance sheet and that affects the money supply of the United States of America. And so that's a very cheap way. And they're like, we owe $50,000. You know what? Okay, yeah. You know what? I'm just going to... Ah, I added a zero. Okay, my income. Look at that. It matches. That's so weird. That's crazy. And so with that little cost and that much incentive to increase the money supply, it, it, any reasonably rational person would expect that that's going to be Because they can't abused. just... They just can't do nothing you know it's like that that interventionista thing like if he does nothing well what what is his job for so he like by the fact that that dude has a job necessitates he feels like he's got to do something yeah exactly the interventionista impulse and so this is the issue of incentives that we come across of course technically jerome powell is also a citizen of the united states but his so he has an incentive to like take care of himself as a citizen but the bigger incentive, I would argue, is that he needs to make sure that he's still around next election cycle or whatever. So right, because he's probably pretty old. So like, yeah, okay, he exactly. could burn the country to the ground. Like, eh, it's probably not going to happen. But he's like and seventy then, or whatever. He's like, whatever, cool. I lived a great life. Good luck, guys. Yeah, and then he can go like give a talk at a bank if he gets fired and get paid whatever two hundred fifty thousand dollars <laughs> speaking yeah. fee. Right. Yeah. And so he'll be he'll be okay. So his incentive is not the same or what he wants. His incentive is not the same as our incentives. And it's so easy for him to manipulate the money supply in favor of his incentive at the cost of our incentive as the holders of this this currency that we're forced to use at the end of a gun, monopoly on violence, govern all that. And, and so that's why it's such a problem. Because printing money, the, the cost of that is the dollars in my wallet basically get worth less inflation and it's even worse because it's an uh uh, an asymmetric cost meaning 
the people closer to that printer get a get a benefit versus the people far away from the p- printer pay the price. So for example, imagine an economy on an island of 10 apples. That's the entire list of goods you can buy on the island. There's also $10 and 10 people on that economy. So a dollar gets you one apple. Well, if one guy was able to print 10 more dollars, those dollars are not available to all of the other people. In the long run, every dollar is going to be worth two dollars because now there's twenty dollars and ten apples but for a while every apple is gonna be worth two dollars yes sorry yeah um the but for a while that guy who printed has twenty dollars he could buy every apple in the entire economy before that gets spread out the effects of that money printing gets spread out and so the people who are close to that money the people in the government people in the federal reserve people in the banks of the largest corporations of america they get the benefit of that of that printing before the average person does who ends up paying the cost by saying oh my savings account doesn't get me as many goods and services as it used to what happened and so that was a long monologue talking about the problems of the current system now the only real way to solve that is to take away the ability for someone to press (laughs) type on their keyboard another zero to their balance sheet Mm -hmm. and something like bitcoin uh solves that problem meaning no one person can actually just adjust the monetary policy of the Bitcoin network. It is a decentralized network where no one can change the rules. Every my rules, the president's rules, someone someone who's homeless rules, and Jerome Powell's rules are all the same. There's no difference in in anybody's uh, rules or benefits they can accrue. And so, and if they did want to change the rules, it is such a high cost. To so many people that I would argue that it's much more likely that that would be a uh, a change that would benefit a collective uh, the collective versus you know harm most people at the cost of benefiting one person. Right. So that's why that's way uh, a way that something like Bitcoin, a distributed monetary network, could solve the eat your own turtles problem that is plaguing our current fiat system. Nice. Yeah. That's so crazy because like built into that is inflation protection. And so, you know, those perverse incentives where, yeah, like maybe stuff could be changed, but it would have to be a shitload, like 51%, I think, or maybe more would have to basically be like, yep, this makes sense. So it's not going to be that Jerome guy, but you know what today? Ah, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to pat myself on the back. No, it's not going to be like that. Exactly. Let us now generalize about risk sharing, all literally in the same boat. And so he describes a voyage of St. Paul on a cargo ship. And as they hit a storm, um, you know, they're really heavy. The boat's really heavy. And so they try to eat as much as they can. But then, you know, it's still going to risking capsizing. So they lighten the load by throwing some corn overboard. Now, while they jettisoned particular goods, all owners were to be proportioned the costs of the lost merchandise. And so what that basically means is like, you know, let's say that I've got some, there's a, a merch, there's five merchants on there. Some has sheep, some has corn, some has wheat, some has guns, some has rum. And you, oh, hey, well, we've done the cost benefit analysis. Like, sorry, we got to throw out the corn. Well, evenly split on that is everybody evenly shares the cost. And so that practice um, was an old practice. It actually dates back at least to 800 BC, uh, codified in Rhodian law. 
but it, it stip stipulates that the risks and costs for contingencies are to be incurred equally with no concern for responsibility. And so that same mechanism of risk sharing took place with caravans along desert routes. If merchandise was stolen or lost, everyone had to split the cost, not just the owner. But, and, and he's not even saying that as like, that's the right answer. He's saying that as like an illustration of, of this, because think about the behavior that would drive. If there's 20 caravans in your, in your little wagon thing, and you got one idiot fucking friend who's, you know, drunk driving his wagon over jumps, you know, passing out, getting woken up by actual coyotes licking his face. You know, he'd be like, hey, dude, you, you know, you're, you're either going to force him out you're gonna, or you're going to make him shake, shape up. Because if that idiot's wagon gets stolen, you actually have to pay a portion of your own money for this guy's idiocy. So I think that's a, that's a crazy example of just how like counterintuitively these, these systems can work. And now we go into, uh, once again, uh, Taleb offends humans is a fair summary of how logically consistent he is right here. So he went on TV and uh, he was announcing the, the, his new book and he, he somehow got stuck into a panel discussion about Microsoft with two journalists plus the anchor. And he says, my turn came and I said, I own no Microsoft stock. I am short, no Microsoft stock. I can't talk about it. Everyone was quiet and shocked. But his point is that, you know, everyone feels that an impartial journalist with no ownership in something is, is way better. But in reality, that just leads to actual parrots repeating random phrases. And, uh, okay, <laughs> real quick side note. So my wife, family's horrible, and uh, we... Uh, growing up they had a parrot and so that parrot like learned all these horrible things so it oh learned God. like one two and then learned like you bitch and so if there's no skin in the game you're no better than a parrot i have a counter point to that go i don't think that you can be an impartial journalist i don't think that i think that's like a myth because you you own something all you do is say, oh, I'm an impartial journalist. I don't own Microsoft, but I do own the dollar. I do yeah. own real estate. So I don't think, I think it's like just BS that it's you like be like, I'm every, impartial. You have a strategy, whether you know it or not. Yes, exactly. So if you're if you're not, you know, shilling a bunch of stocks, well, you're just shilling the US dollar. Yeah, or you're participating in the mainstream media cancel culture bonanza. Yeah. What I hope this book will do is show the former journalists with no skin in the game is more important to pay attention to than the latter people with conflicts of interest there's no problem if people have conflicts of interest if it carries with it downside risk for themselves and he, he points out that this can be super tricky and not obvious and so he says let's say you visit a doctor you need to remember that you're facing someone who, in spite of his or her authoritarian demeanor, is in a fragile situation. He's not you, not a member of your family, so he has no direct emotional loss over your health. His objective is naturally to avoid a lawsuit, something that can prove to be disastrous to his career. And so I felt this so much when I hurt my back, because I went to um, this place, Indiana Spine Group, and uh, I asked the doctor, because I was like, dude, my back's so fucked up, and it's been like four years. And I'm like, I heard it deadlifting. Can I squat? Can I deadlift? Like, what's my prognosis? Like, let's pretend that I was in the NFL. How would you fix me? And he gave me some 
bullshit about how like you know deadlifts and squats are dangerous and you know everybody thinks they're safe but they're dangerous and you won't ever do them again i'm like oh god damn it and then i was like well i'm just gonna ask him every question so i said well what if what if i took steroids would that would that help my back and he said if you want to be a liar and a cheater go ahead but I, yeah, I'm like, but what am I lying about or cheating? I just want to fix my back, buddy. And I would guarantee that this, this doc, I bet $5,000 of my actual dollars that this doctor was on TRT, testosterone replacement therapy, because he had that reddish hue and he was as jacked as me, but he clearly had a, didn't even have a basic understanding of strength and conditioning programming. And so he did like squats and deadlifts. Yeah. I mean, Jesus, what an idiot. And so I ended up actually reading an article by Mark Ripito and curing my back 80, 85% with the deadlift from that article of like, hey, rebuild your, you know, rebuild your deadlift from the ground up. And, um, you know, this doctor's perspective was, hey, you can't deadlift because, you know, he can't, he can't tell you to go deadlift. So he just sent me to this physical therapist that basically, you know, who trained old people for a living. And on the first day, I one-legged maxed out the leg press machine. And she was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And I'm like, yeah, but I can I can do half of what I could do before I hurt my back. And she's like, but that's a lot. And I'm like, yes, lady, it is a lot compared to an 80-year-old woman. But I'm over here three weeks ago having two arms and two legs. And now I don't have actual arms, but I do have a lot of legs. And I'm like, yes. I do compared to actual worms, but give me my fucking arms back. But that's the point. They had no skin in my back game. You know, they're just doing the things to, to protect themselves. They had not get sued skin in the game. They Yes, they had not get sued skin in the game. So this chapter introduced us to the agency problem and risk sharing. We also looked at scaling. Next, we will try to go deeper into the hidden asymmetries that make aggregates strange animals the most intolerant wins the dominance of the stubborn minority the main idea behind complex systems is that the ensemble behaves in ways not predicted by its components the interactions matter more than the nature of the units so studying each individual person who participated in the genocide of rwanda is almost meaningless compared to looking at the overall system level factors you know unstable government hugely popular radio shows with charismatic and funny hosts who, who joked about go kill yourself a, a tootsie cockroach taken individually each of these people was actually probably good but added all together shit got real bad and the rule we discuss in this chapter is ridiculous it's the minority rule the mother of all asymmetries it suffices for an intransigent, so unflexible, not flexible, minority, unwilling to change one's views with significant skin in the game to reach a minutely small level, say 3 or 4% of the total population, for the entire population to have to submit to their preferences. Further, an optical illusion comes from the dominance of the minority, a naive observer who looks at the average, for example, would be under the impression that the choices and preferences are those of the of the majority. So that sounds so crazy, but let's stick with it. We got an example. So this hit him when he was at a barbecue 
at the New England Complex Systems Institute. Man, I bet those are great parties. As he was setting up, a friend who observes the kosher eating requirement dropped by. Now, Taleb doesn't give a fuck about rules, and so he offered him lemonade, just trolling him, almost sure he would reject it because he's kosher, but he didn't. And Taleb's like, that's weird. I thought you're kosher. But another kosher person commented and said, around here, everything is kosher. And a strange idea hit Mr. Taleb. The kosher population represents less than three-tenths of a percent of the population of the residents of the United States. Yet it appears that almost all drinks are kosher. Why? Simply because going full kosher allows the producers, grocers, and restaurants to not have to distinguish between kosher and non-kosher liquids with special aisles, markets, inventories. So a kosher eater will never eat non-kosher. So, you know, if I observe religiously the eating requirement of kosher, I'm never going to not do that. But a non-kosher eater, they're not banned. Like, I, if, I, if I don't eat kosher, I can, I can eat kosher or not eat kosher. Rephrased into another domain, a disabled person will not use the regular bathroom, but a non-disabled person will use the bathroom for disabled people. And I will say one of, life, one of life's rare pleasures is shitting in the handicap stall, especially if you get that blue water. Someone with a peanut allergy will not eat products with a touch of peanuts, but a person without a peanut allergy can eat items with no peanut traces in it. This is insane. Let us apply this rule to domains where it can get entertaining. An honest person will never commit criminal acts, but a criminal will readily engage in, in legal acts. Your drunk friend who doesn't know martial arts but tries to fight people will force you, the possessor of martial arts knowledge, to beat up strangers to save his virtue. Let us call the minority the inflexible group and the majority the flexible one. And their, and their relationship rests on an asymmetry in choices. Uh, Taleb says, he, I once pulled a prank on a European friend when Big Tobacco was hiding evidence of the harm of secondhand smoke. Uh, they came to New York City and uh, they had a smoking and non-smoking section available in restaurants. And in this par particular restaurant, only the smoking section was available. So Taleb convinced his visitor that they had to buy cigarettes and smoke in the smoking section. He complied. How are you a fucking person, Taleb? I don't know. That's a ridiculous story. I don't even know what to say about that. It's like, what, what, the what is wrong with you, brother? Two things also matter here. Uh, the geography, so the, the distribution of that minority. You know, if the minority is pretty evenly mixed in the population, the rule will be stronger than if the minority has its own little section. So think like a fraternity at college. Uh, you know, that minority... But that minority behavior probably wouldn't be generalized to the group because, you know, they have their own little sub-society. So that's one. And the second is it's the cost that matters. So if it costs basically the same to make kosher lemonade, everyone will just make kosher lemonade. If it costs 10 times more, that, that's dropping off a bit. So like for me, lact so I'm lactose intolerant, but lactose-free options like seven years ago, it was always three, four times as expensive. And it's like, yeah, bitch, I'm not buying milk that's the same cost as whey protein. But now that cost is coming down, and I would guess that the calculations for milk companies are going to soon be lactose-free. Because, you know, if you can have lactose, you can drink either lactose or lactose-free. If you can't have lactose, you can only drink lactose-free. That's interesting. Yeah. 
I think like, like the Fair Life or something has like lactose yeah. free. Yeah, I've had that. That Carb Master stuff's good too. Oh really? Hey, is is uh just to go full uh, controversial here? Is COVID an example of minority rule? Go. I don't because know because some people will get COVID. They can get COVID and live. There's a few people who can get COVID and they will die. And so based on that, we're going to change the entire, like we've changed all of our, I'm going to say this is wrong. We've just changed all of our behavior based on a small percentage of people that would actually die from this. Like if 5% of all old people who get COVID die, yeah, that is the minority that trickles down to, yeah. Hey, protect grandma. Don't, don't go out. The next thing you know, you like can't go get coffee or go to Target or go to a concert because whatever five percent of old people or like whatever point something some point something percent of people on average in general will actually die from this like a very small minority is going to affect the entire country yeah and that's that's just i think that's right i think that's a really good example because we're not like attaching like value judgments to this it's more like on the aggregate this is just how statistics work and it's officially called the renormalization group um and so this is where in a large group of people, you start with minority. And uh, so l- let's just use an example. So let's start with a family of four, okay? One of them is the inflexible minority and she eats only non-GMO food. So she's the stubborn daughter and she manages to impose her rule on the family because she's like, I'll kill myself. If I if I eat GMO, I'll kill myself. Oh God, my God, okay, Let's calm down, little buddy. And then, you know, she's going to go on a damn hunger strike and you know, if she dies, like if you're probably getting trouble if you're the parent. So you just eat, you just eat non-GMO. But this is where the fucking example gets crazy. So let's say that you host a barbecue with three other families in the neighborhood. Well, everybody knows that you, but really, it's just like, hey, that I'm gonna kill myself if I eat GMO. So, but but you, as the family unit, eat non-GMO. So everybody who brings items to the kitchen is non-GMO. Okay, tracking. But then the locals, the local grocery store, realizing that the whole neighborhood is non-GMO, switches to only carrying non-GMO stuff, which translates up to the wholesaler who's like, well, fuck, if I'm carrying, you know, if I'm catering to all these grocery stores and all the preferences of these grocery stores is non-GMO, I'm going to tell, you know, Big Ag, I'm going to say, hey, I don't want any genetically modified crap. And that translates all the way up. And, the, and so the system rapidly renormalizes its way up and that's fucking crazy and that same thing exists for radical political factions so think about like the inf- the inflexible minority say 10% is only going to vote for their faction so like i'm only going to vote for the alt right republican candidate i'm not I'm, you know, if you're not that you're a, you're a basically liberal to me but if I'm if I don't have that radical view, I can. You know, but I'm a Republican. I can vote for the crazy person or a regular Republican candidate. So if I wanted to, like, oh, I want to make my chances of winning as high as possible, you know, you end up you see wild shit happening where you know the inflexible minority renormalizes its way back up the political system, where you get you know crazy unpredictable candidates elected. Like Donald Trump. Yeah, he's a great example. Another great example is like the uh, whatever the the squad, uh, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party right now, where if you don't basically agree with their pretty extreme policies in terms of collective collectivist policies, extreme you know left wing policies, then it's actually racist or bigoted. 
if you don't okay. agree with that. Well, I better agree and with if, it then. And if you disagree with that, like you're not going to get elected because now you're in the position of having to prove that you're not a racist, which is right. not a great look. Right. And it's like if you come to a party and like all of a sudden the first thing you meet about somebody, they're like, I'm not racist. Well, Jesus hey. Christ. Wow. And so everyone it's basically the small minority of the Democratic Party is, is able to influence the entire wing because if you don't agree with them, they're just intransigent. They're inflexible. Yeah. And he brings up another example of this where um, the beer wine asymmetry. So, you know, let's say you're catering a party and once you have 10% or more women at the party, you cannot serve only beer because on average women don't like beer apparently. Um, But so you now serve wine, but most men will actually drink wine. So you end up only needing one set of glasses if you serve only wine. The universal donor, to use the language of blood groups, is wine. If a meeting takes place in Germany, and even one person doesn't speak German, the meeting will be run in England. Insanity. Right now. Uh, so you, give, a, give an example. Do you have an example of an uh, inflexible minority? Uh, I do. I do. I, I, first, I was going to just randomly comment that, uh, I don't know if you know this, but in Miami, I was, I, I was I'm living in Miami right now. And you would be shocked. Like when I first went down there, I thought that there'd be like some people who like spoke Spanish, obviously, because there's a large Spanish community there. And then, you know, other, other than that, people speak English. But the reality is everyone, like some people speak English there. It's the opposite of what I thought. It's, it's like, that is a Spanish city. Dang. And, and like, I, for example, I flew here from, from uh, Miami to Indiana, for, to Indiana, right? And on the way there, I spoke to an Uber driver on the way there to the airport checking in with like whatever my driver's license and ticket i spoke to another person and then when i was in the airport i got like a bottle of water or something like that from uh the cashier all three of those people spoke no english dang and i'm like dude i'm in the united states but like i'm i don't understand the language at all and so i don't know if that relates to this but it just reminded me of uh the german meeting thing the only example i can think of i'm trying to have some skin in the game and only use personal examples here um, I remember when I was growing up, uh, my friend group in my neighborhood, this was like, I don't know, I was 11 or 12 or something like that. We would all, it was like a bunch of boys just hanging out in the neighborhood. And we just beat the hell out of each other with, uh, those plastic lightsabers. You know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That was super fun. Well, there is one set of friends that was a set of brothers, a big brother and a little brother. And the big brother was super cool. We got along great. We we're great friends. But the little brother had a little bit of an attitude problem. And if he didn't get his way, he would just start like wailing and crying and mm. just throwing a big fit. And if he ever did that, his mom basically shut down the whole game for the little brother and said like, oh, I'm taking away the lightsabers or I'm doing this or whatever, blah, 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 whatever he basically wanted. So you to had to cater to this bitch so you we could had, play with your lightsabers because he was yes. the inflexible minority. So it'd be, like, it'd be like four or five dudes all playing, doing whatever game we're playing. That one inflexible minority would throw a fit. The game's done. Dang. Yeah. We didn't like it very much. Yeah. I bet he's still alive. He is. <laughs> <laughs> that was a strange comment, yeah. but yes. Oh, okay. So he, he's explaining how Islam spreads too. Um, so the the crazy thing is like this principle is everywhere. And so in Islam, if a non-Muslim man marries a Muslim woman, he must convert to Islam. If um, and so and if either parent is Muslim, the child's Muslim. Second, if if you become Muslim, it's irreversible. It's punishable by death. 
So talk about a strict cancellation policy. So under these two asymmetric rules, we can see how a small group of Muslims over centuries could come to dominate a population. They're like taking over France right now. Damn. I have no comments. But if if every single intermarriage turns into a new Muslim and all future descendants have to be Muslim, it's like a fight between two memes with different replicating effectivenesses. Okay, Mr. Dawkins. Oh, yeah. Well, what? Insanity. And so there's a bunch more examples of how, like, cancel culture is actually a, a presentation of this, too, you know. Everybody's mad at Dave Chappelle, you know, cancel Dave Chappelle. Uh, but it's it's that's its whole same theme of these inflexible minorities come up with black and white rules. And, you know, you can't just eat a little bit kosher. And now this is an actual example from Taleb. I don't think if you fondled the breast of the wife of some random weightlifter in front of him, you would be able to convince him that, nah, man, it's cool. It's just a little bit. No, that's the that's the just the tip fallacy. It's never just the tip. I think one more example that we see everywhere is online media follows this rule. So imagine you're a news site or a news organization, and you can have a wide spectrum of possibilities that what your opinion or your take or your framing of some world event could be. Well, you're in tra- you're inflexible. You're in trans- transigent in terms of I got to make money as a company. Well, it turns out that a very small minority, a a small percentage of opinions actually drive the most clicks. It's like the Pareto principle, right? Mm. It's like the most extreme ways you could, you could frame some. Like Trump, Trump ate a child. He did eat a child. Yeah, exactly. It's like, wait, I think just read a bedtime story. No, I saw him eat a kid. Yeah. Or like AOC wants to take all your money and guns and throw you in the gulag. Oh Oh, no. My money and my guns. Damn. Eat the poor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, No, the rich, the rich, eat the rich. No, I support eat the poor. Oh yeah, me too. I'm pro eat poor. Yeah. Um, Go on. But anyway, no, that small minority of opinions and takes, for example, ends up being all of the articles in that news organization because that's the thing that actually Dude, drives clicks and monies. I just had in a, in a monies. I just had a, I just had an epiphany that the algorithm doesn't have a conscience, and so I would I would guess that the algorithm would now like like this principle would be exacerbated by algorithms who realize that oh shit. This shit spreads really well. This is like my job every day. Exactly. I've, this is the world I live in now, and you just see it. It's obvious, and it's a real problem. If you don't know that, you just think that what you read on the internet is like normal opinions. Dude, it is not. It is the craziest version of every opinion that will drive the most clicks. Yeah. Like, Anthony Papiano will kill himself if you don't invest in Bitcoin. Like, yeah, what? exactly. What? what? That, well, that get a lot of views, I bet. Right. And, and you know, and I was actually going to bring him up, too, because uh, speaking of skin of the game, right, this is slightly unrelated, but he's got 95% of his wealth in Bitcoin, specifically. And he talks about it a lot. So it's like, if he's right, he's going to be an emperor. Mm-hmm. If he's wrong, he will feel that Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. So, I, you know. Some people would not like that, but other people would say that that would make him more trustworthy to listen to because... And I think yeah. it like there's a sliding scale where it's like trustworthy, 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 then like mental illness, and it's hard to figure out like yeah, sure. where that is. Like, YOLO, bitch, everything on Bitcoin. But, 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 but at yeah. least he's not, he's not going to... It's not going to be like where someone else pays the price if he's wrong. Totally. He's super fucked if he's wrong. And part of the craziness of this is because it's actually paradoxically more stable under the minority rule the variance 
in results is way lower. So think about this. You run an airline, you have no peanuts. Okay, no peanuts on the airline. Okay, well, what happens? Nobody gets peanuts. So there's some people who are like, man, you know, I really do like some peanuts. I really crave some peanuts right now. But, but it's fine. They're like, whatever. You know, I'm never sitting here like, man, I'm so upset that I don't have peanuts. So, so that's kind of stable. You know, everybody's kind of like in this shitty situation of no peanuts. Now, let's say that you're an airline and you have peanuts. Well, the vast majority of the people are fine. But then some people, a small, inflexible minority, are so upset if you have peanuts. Yeah, they're so fucking upset for no reason. You know, they, they puff up four times the size, suffocate, and die in the seat next to you. Suck and so, up. Yeah, so if you look at like the variability of outcomes, part of the reason that things tend towards this minority rule is because it's just way simpler if you're an airline to never have to like card off like four times puffed up people you, you just don't have peanuts i like peanuts on airlines though i'm sorry man is, you can't have any because an intolerant minority can control and destroy the world oh jesus <laughs> that's what he says he just throws that in there like that's normal conversation <laughs> um and i think this goes back to his thesis uh, that i named ain't nobody can predict shit so if you think about it, like you, you're sitting there wanting to predict something, this is just another way that things can really counterintuitively present themselves. You know, there's a system with 40 trillion interacting variables. You can't tell me that there couldn't be some random inflexible minority in there somewhere that uh, will cause fuckery. You know, Bitcoin has a, uh, to, just to bring the conversation back to Bitcoin, because I Great. feel like that's you know my what? job. We should actually change this podcast to uh, the Bitcoin. We should call it Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin-y. Yeah. Um, no, th there's actually a small faction of the uh, Bitcoin people that are an inflexible minority. You're right. The Bitcoin maximalists. Like if you don't exist. believe it's going to, if you don't believe it's going to a million, you should fucking die. Yes, exactly. And there's no such thing as like an Ethereum maximalist or like a Cardano or a Polkadot maximalist. It's only in the Bitcoin community there are factions of people that's like Bitcoin is the one and only, like there can only be one cryptocurrency. Everything else is an actual scam. Yeah. And you're actually immoral if you even consider buying it. Man, they know a lot about investing. <laughs> I know. But, but it's interesting. Like think about like what is that going to do? What, how is that going to play out over time? Like and how and how does if you are a measured investor and you yep. think about Bitcoin is like wow this really maybe could solve that problem with that like Joseph dude or whatever Jerome yeah Jerome uh, you know, J Powell adding zeros um, maybe it could solve that but like if you don't put all your money on Bitcoin you're a fake you hate you're children. a fake pussy and you hate children yep. so I bet that drives people to display the behavior of yoloing a bunch more money on Bitcoin right. even when if you're smart. It sucks, but like you probably shouldn't do that, right? And now, and now, if I'm if I'm just like an alien looking down at this community with zero skin in the game, right? You would almost say, based based off of Taleb's arguments, that Bitcoin potentially would grow more than other cryptocurrencies because it has this like semi-religious, like Al-Qaeda-like faction of <laughs> of Bitcoiners that will not do anything except for buy Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. And uh, in the spirit of this podcast and Taleb and the minority, I'm going to leave us this episode. I'm going to finish off this episode with a quote about battle. Good. Out of every 100 men, 10 shouldn't even be there. 80 are just targets. Nine are the real fighters, and we're lucky to have them, for they make the battle. Ah, but the one, 
One is a warrior, and he will bring the others back. Be the one. Tune in next time on the next episode. And that's my printies is another podcast. episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Talk about Check us out talk about how to at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the quote. Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcast. The end. But if you want to learn that and more and everything your heart could desire, you're going to have to tune in next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.